Welcome to Practical Theology, a podcast series by Battle Creek Friends Church. Our hope is that by listening, you feel equipped in your faith to speak out in confidence about what you believe and live it out. We're here to help you seek the Lord throughout your day. So here's your host, Bible teacher, father, husband, and guy who likes cookies, Leo Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode six of Practical Theology. Today we're continuing our conversation on God, morals, and ethics. We started this by talking about Romans 13 and this whole idea that if a world leader or governor or whoever would say, hey, you need to do task A, but you see in scripture that God says you are not to do task A, you have this conflict And what are we to do with it? It seems like it's a contradiction. It seems like a no-win scenario for some people. Well, we'll start to address how to resolve these conflicts. But I think what's important is to realize that there are examples in Scripture of these moral conflicts. And by studying these, we will see how to navigate through this moral conflict in a way that would honor God. First example is the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three guys are taken from their homeland and they are brought to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar tells them, you're going to bow down and worship a statue of gold that is of me. And they say, no, king, we will not. We will not do that. Um, It's against our morals. Our God says not to do this. So we're not going to do it. And even if you do throw us into the fiery furnace uh, and we die, it still doesn't make it right. But our God can deliver us. This is a possibility. Well, Sure enough, God does deliver them. There's a fourth person in the fire with them that is seen there, and it's peculiar to Nebuchadnezzar, but they come out, and Nebuchadnezzar praises their God. He goes, indeed, your God did save you, and acknowledges him. And I think through moral conflicts, we see tension there that can bring about great conviction in people to help them see God, to help others see God the way you handle the moral conflict, which is just adding to the importance of why we should pursue looking at these. So let's look at, before we get into the three different ethical codes, let's look at some more scriptural examples of moral conflicts. And we won't resolve these now, but I just want to bring them up so they're in our heads as we're going through. The first one is Exodus 1, 15 through 21. It reads like this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the boy is a baby, a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let those boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So here you see that they have another conflict, right? Task A, kill the boys. God says, we don't kill people like that. Okay, now I have a moral conflict. And they are praised. I think this part's important. We see God's verdict on the situation. When he gives them the midwives families of their own, this is looked at as a great honoring thing in the ancient Middle East, ancient Near East. They, to have a family, to give birth to children, that is honoring to a woman. 
So this is understood by the audience as saying, God blessed them for what they had done. So out of a moral conflict, once again, we see this blessing, this statement of God approving. How about another one? This is in Joshua 2, verse 4 starts. But the woman had taken two men and hidden them. This is speaking of Rahab in Jericho. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Well, there's another situation. She betrays, Rahab betrays her countrymen to save the lives of two men, two Israelite men. Well, there's a response to this in Scripture. In the New Testament, James 2.25 says this, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Notice that. That's acknowledging that there was a conflict and that she was actually given praise, right? She was considered righteous for what she did when she sent the spies off, but she lied to the other ones. Being told in Scripture that you were considered righteous for a certain act in a moral conflict also shows us great hope that we can look at a moral conflict and know that there's, there's a possible way out. So how do we resolve these moral conflicts? Over the years, people have come up with different strategies. Um, the first one we'll talk about of the three, we'll talk about two today and one next week. The first one is unqualified absolutism. Now, there are other strategies besides the ones I'm mentioning here of these ethical codes, but these three would be considered, I'd say, more Christian than ones that are relative, that uh, have moral subjectivism, for example, that society sets moral codes. This is why we got into the moral argument last time, to make sure we understand that morals come from God. And with that, we want to just talk about the three ethical systems, all of which really surround themselves with this concept of moral absolutes. So the first one, unqualified absolutism. This was held by Augustine, and in it, the concept is there are no exceptions. Um, lying is wrong, and lying is pretty much the highest sin. We'll talk about graded sins here in a while, but the concept is that lying is the pinnacle thing. We cannot lie. So in Psalm 5, 5 through 6, Augustine understood this. It says, Thou dost hate, O Lord, all who work in iniquity. Thou shalt destroy all who speak a lie. And when he, when he hears this idea, his concept of this is it, it's just the ultimate wrong. So he justifies that by saying, well, it's the reason for lying being the ultimate wrong is it destroys all certainty and ruins a relationship. And since our relationship is so significant when it's with Christ and God, um, all relationships, right? Even with people, love your neighbor as yourself. We, we should hold those in high regard. So lying is really the top-notch sin. All right. The other thing that he holds in this ethical code is that there are no real moral conflicts. Um, he stresses the idea of this third way out. God will always provide this third way. Any moral conflict that you think you see isn't real. And in some people even cite like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 with this, where God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And I think this is a misunderstanding categorically. Temptation isn't the same as sinning. You might be tempted and then sin, but it's it's in a different category. 
you, for example, can be tempted to do something and choose not to do it. That doesn't mean that you've sinned. So in the concept, we're not talking about being tempted. Um, and people talk about, well, but what you can bear being tempted. Well, yes, there, there is that aspect of like, it feels like if you're in a no situation and there's a temptation that can result in sin, if there were two sins or two things like any of the examples we gave with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Rahab, that if it was no temptation beyond what you could bear that you could get a way out. But this isn't what that's saying. This is saying that if you have a choice to sin or to not sin on an individual situation, then you could get out. And I believe that. But in a situation where you're faced with a moral conflict, this doesn't apply like that. This would be the idea that um, you're not tempted to do either one of these. As a matter of fact, the whole idea of a moral conflict is you don't want to do either one of them. So it's not like you're tempted to do something that you want to do. This is two situations that you don't want to be in. So let's look at look at how this lays out. The the characteristics of it are this, for this unqualified absolutism. God's unchanging character is the basis for all moral absolutes. And I agree with this. I, we talked about the moral code. We talked about the argument for morality. I think this is true. The second one is God has expressed his unchanging moral character in his law. I agree with this too. I, I think this is important to understand that scripture shows the nature of God. Three, God cannot contradict himself. So now this is where people struggle. It's like, well, when God says you have to obey your leaders and then you do this other thing, which scripture says, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, then you're, you're saying God can contradict himself. That's not what we're saying here. Number four would say, hence, no two absolute moral laws can really conflict, right? And that was what I was pointing out. Um, I, I don't agree with this, but this is what this view says. So let's just go through that. Five, all moral conflicts are only apparent and they're not real. Well, okay, if that's the case, then the three biblical concepts that we talked about in which God praises somebody for doing one of the things that if you thought that wasn't real, they chose the alternative situation, that does seem odd, right? Well, let's talk about some positive aspects here. God's laws are the absolute foundation of this ethical system. That is great, right? We're not talking about moral subjectivity. We're talking about moral absolutes. Rules are stressed over result, right? This was great. The, the prior conversations I talked about where things can change, um, ends don't justify the means. This is significant. Trusting God's providence. I do like that. I think we should trust in God. I think we should see how he can provide things the way out. I think he provided the answer, though, for moral conflicts in one of the examples that he gave us, but also in a general ethic that we'll talk about. And there is always avoiding sin. There's always the idea that you can avoid sin. I, I think that's a great concept. I wish it were true. I wish we could avoid those hard situations. And as a matter of fact, and this is kind of messing with the word, I do think we can avoid um, sins in this situation. And we'll talk about next week, the idea of the difference of an exception versus an exemption. Even though I think in any of those examples I gave earlier, somebody did do something that would be categorized as a sin in the situation they were exempt because they were doing the greater good. And this will be talked about next week. So how about negative aspects of this when we have to look at the problems on why this isn't the greatest ethical code? Um, it's a form of ethical dualism, really. Sins are greater than physical sins. A lie is the greater sin than murder, for example. 
Augustine is inconsistent with this, though. Um, like, for example, David in 1 Samuel 25, when he made an oath to kill Nabal, but spared him based on his wife's intervention. So if David didn't keep his word when he said he was going to kill him, did he create a greater sin by sparing his life? I I think that's a hard thing to say. I think I think that would be a... On this ethical code system, you would have to say that, and I think that Scripture doesn't show that. I think they show that... David sparing him was the right choice. What about this? The idea that uh, a lie to save a life and being separated from mercy, like if the lie is truly the greatest thing, like Rahab did, you're saying that she did something wrong there because she wanted to save the lives of somebody. And we start to get into this hierarchy. And and it is important. We are going to talk about these things. But, I mean, those are significant. So I, I struggle with that one, even especially since James gave her praise. God says that she was considered righteous for doing this. Seems hard to me to believe that in this ethical code system that you would still say that she made a greater wrong by lying to save their lives. Uh, the other thing is, does lying really destroy all relationships and certainty? Uh, is, is, are there other ways to destroy certainty? Let's say you're working with a coworker and they tend to be wrong a lot. They're not lying. They just give you the wrong solutions. They give you bad ideas. They're not lying to you. They actually think they are the right idea, but they would lose credibility, wouldn't they? After time, relationships build, and you see like, man, that person, I just don't trust them. But it's not because they lied to you. There are other ways you can destroy the idea of certainty. So I don't, if if destroying relationship certainty is important, lying is only one way to do that. There are many other ways to ruin relationships or to at least ruin certainty in relationships. And this was something that Augustine himself struggled with. Um, To consider something uncertain, although we know that there were, you know, humans that made mistakes, although they weren't necessarily in scripture. Like we, we see this all the time. In other words, the workplace example is one example but even the apostles made mistakes, right? Like it doesn't mean because Peter denied Christ that I shouldn't listen to Peter's word in in his gospel, in like the scripture that he gave us, right? Does that make sense? The the idea that I'll try to re-explain that. A lie destroying certainty is one thing, but certainty also comes the other way, which is somebody can be wrong or even lie to us. But that doesn't make them a compulsive liar, for example. They could have made a mistake. Peter denied Christ out of fear. That was a terrible thing. He lied when the person asked, oh, surely you're with him. But we can also understand why he did that. Scripture shows us this, and it actually adds to the reliability of Scripture in an ironic sense because it records negative things. So I don't think this was negative, nor does it impact my view of Peter. If anything, it draws me a little closer to him because I can empathize, because I've been scared, because I've made mistakes like this, because I am a sinner knowing how I can rest on God. Okay, so some responses to these. You know, God doesn't promise anywhere that he's going to keep us from moral dilemmas. When it says like there's always a third way out, I I appreciate that. I don't see evidence of that in Scripture. Um, And as a matter of fact, I don't see the idea that God says he'll always keep us from these moral dilemmas. Yes, I quoted the idea of temptation, but that's an individual situation, not the other. So I think think that's significant. Let's see, what else? Uh, The fact that third alternatives are not always there. This is another example that we saw through the scriptural examples. We don't see a third example. Some people say, well, that's because they didn't try. Well, 
I don't think that's the case. I don't think God would have said the things that he would have said when praising Rahab or blessing the Hebrew midwives. So, you know, in, in I think in our lives, the practical instance of this that we'll talk about, I, I think that that's not always apparent. I think when we see end-of-life situations, uh, battlefields for soldiers, the the ethical systems in society and the choices that we have to make, I think we don't always see that third way. I, I think we are in hard situations that we even find ways of justifying things and not even realizing that we're doing it in this moral conflict system. So let's go on to the next one. Um, it's called conflicting absolutism. In this one, there are moral absolutes and there are moral conflicts. God's laws can never be broken, though, in this situation. And so, therefore, when you do it, you have to do the lesser of two evils. And it, this system relies on the fact that if you ask for forgiveness, you can be forgiven. So the, the strong basis of this is this. Yep, I get it. You're going to receive a moral conflict and your obligation is to do the lesser of two evils. Then you would confess the sin, you would be forgiven, and all would be right. This is the basics of this system. August, or, uh, Luther even had a thing where he said this. He said, sin boldly, but believe even more boldly that Christ will forgive you. So even showing over the years people who have been like, yep, like in the situations like this, uh, if you're going to do it, understand you're going to do it, but you can be forgiven in the situation of sinning, and that should be comforting. For sure, I agree. Okay, so let's look at the positives of this type of system, okay? God's moral law is absolute unbreakable. We've saw that. That's a positive. In a fallen world, unavoidable conflicts between God's commands occur. They acknowledge the moral conflict. Third, when moral conflicts happen, we should do the lesser evil. So they're looking at, like, look, we understand there's only two situ- like there's two solutions, and in this, you're responsible to do the lesser evil. So in the Rahab situation, there would have been a value of life over lying, which I think makes sense. And she was responsible for doing the lesser. Looks like she did. Okay, so far that seems right. But the fourth point's harder. Forgiveness is available if we confess our sins. I totally agree with that premise. I think the problem is when you jump from the idea of three to four, the idea that you, you, like, you have to sin. We'll talk about that more, but the, I don't think those two follow each other like that. I don't think they're connected with well. So in, in this one, interesting notes, uh, moral conflicts are real. That's a, that's a good one. The Kantian dictum, which is also known as ought implies can, God tells us that we ought not sin. That does imply that we should be able to avoid sinning, not that we're going to be forced into a situation of sinning, right? There's no, we don't see like, okay, you shouldn't sin unless, we don't see that. Um, is a sin a sin, by the way? It, categorically, um, some people say, well, any sin is a sin. This is true. And it is also true that um, sins all need to be atoned for. Any sin would have to be atoned for. So what does that mean? It, it means that if you sin, you still need to ask forgiveness. But does that mean that every sin is the same? Are there not other impacts of sin? So we've made this claim about sin and how there could be different categories of it. Is there any scriptural claim for this? So if you read John 19, 11, Pilate says this. Don't you, Pilate, Pilate's, it's when Pilate is challenging Jesus, 
And he says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. You see that there, that idea of greater sin. Jesus is saying that somebody did something and they're guilty of the greater sin. So his own words allow me to infer that there is a hierarchy of the idea of you can do a worse sin in a sense. Now, granted, it still needs to be forgiven. We're we're not looking at that category. We're looking at the category of maybe impact in personal life or the idea that you've wronged more people. The idea maybe that it's less loving to do something. So with that, I think there's evidence there. Let's talk about another thing that's hard. This duty to do a lesser evil, the obligation that in a situation you have to do evil, the obligation to do evil, that is a problem. To sit there and say that somebody has to sin, that has to do something wrong, that doesn't go with that whole ought implies can thing that we talked about. So, in this view, isn't saying that somebody, like, people have to sin, right? In Romans 3.23, we say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But saying that all have sinned doesn't mean that everybody has to sin, right? We understand we live in a fallen world. We understand that sin is part of this world. We understand, according to that verse, that we're going to sin. But that doesn't mean we have to. And, for example, if there's a chocolate chip cookie in front of me and there was an invisible force field around it, and I am really hungry, I love cookies, and I just, I show willpower and I resist the cookie. Now, would you sit there and say, well, you couldn't have eaten the cookie to begin with. It wasn't possible for you to eat the cookie to begin with. Therefore, you really didn't make the choice. Well, that that's not the case. We would say that I was still able to not sin, even if it was impossible for me to do that. We would say I made the choice not to sin. So it just goes back to a simple matter of depravity. It's not that people are so depraved that we have to sin. It's just that we will sin. It's based on our will instead of, like, let's say, determination or causation. So the response to this, in summary, uh, a moral duty to sin seems morally absurd. Um, If the comfort to having to sin in a moral conflict is that we're forgiven for the sin, aren't we forgiven if we commit the greater one too? Like, right, the, the justification was, well, commit the lesser one and ask for forgiveness. But we could commit the greater one and ask for forgiveness. And if we meant it, we would still be forgiven for it. So I don't, I'm not sure if that, go ahead and ask for forgiveness, do the lesser one is compatible. You could do the greater one and still have the same, you know, working out of the ethical code. Proverbs 16.2 says this, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. And I, I think this gives the idea that intention has meaning, right? In the example that if you were trying to rescue somebody who was drowning and you failed, um, and it looks to somebody like when you were trying to rescue them that you actually drowned the person, well, God knows what your intentions were. You know, all of the flailing in the water and everything else. God knows, no matter how anybody else saw it, God knows what your motives were. And that seems to weigh in God's decisions on your moral conduct, morals and ethics. You know, on the cross, there's another apparent conflict that people don't always talk about. And it comes out of Leviticus 5.1. It says there that if, if you are accused of something, that you have a responsibility to defend yourself, to speak up for yourself. And 
Christ didn't do that. Instead, he sacrificed himself. Now, why did he do that? Well, because he saw mercy as being more significant than defending himself. I think in that case, he wasn't doing the lesser evil, but as we'll talk about next week, he was trying to do the greater good. So as we see these and we've worked through these two systems, I think what we've seen so far is that you can see people trying to wrestle with this idea of a moral conflict. We've gotten to the point that I think we've seen that it's real. We're not going to avoid it. And also the idea that whenever we're faced with this, that we can bring about glory to God in these situations. It's not a no-win situation. It just is a situation that is difficult. It's not a pleasant situation to be. That's why it's called a moral conflict. So when we get to next time, we're going to see how to live it out. We're going to see how when you're entering in a moral conflict, which hopefully don't happen often, but they probably will occur in people's lives, how you can actually look at Scripture to help you, how you can ask God to help you through these situations and not feel wrong about it. So until next time, go and live it out.